You're tuned into Burn After Listening on WECB, your number one source for all things bizarre. I'm your host, Gabby Micarenda, and I'll be guiding you through the next hour here on WECB. Good evening, listeners. I hope this broadcast finds you well. Tonight, I am going to discuss the concept of the unknown and its place in our world. Does it have a place in our world? Tonight's rather special, actually, because I will be reading a radio-revised version of H.P. Lovecraft's The Unnameable, as well as giving you all some background into Lovecraft's life as an American horror writer. So our weekly challenge for Monday, September 30th, is to make a list of things that you know are true without any doubt. Now, make a list of all the things that you doubt or do not know. Compare the two. Kind of scary, isn't it? So, for all of those of you who are very fami- uh, familiar with Lovecraft, uh, go get yourself a glass of milk or something, while I fill in those who know less. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard of Cthulhu, an eldritch abomination who is kind of an octopus, vaguely humanoid, and kind of dragon-esque, but always 100% terrifying. Um, he is also a meme on the internet. Um, artist depictions of him range from utterly adorable to completely terrifying, but that is often how the internet works. So regardless, you've probably seen him somewhere. And this particular episode, though, is not about Cthulhu, but rather his creator, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. So let's just back up a bit. H.P. Lovecraft was born in 1890 on Providence, Rhode Island. He was a sickly child and spent much of his time inside reading and writing. Edgar Allan Poe was one of Lovecraft's favorite writers, and later in life, Lovecraft would cite Poe as one of his biggest inspirations as a writer. Uh, When he was eight, Lovecraft's father died, um, a long and painful drawn-out death from syphilis, which obviously severely affected Lovecraft's psyche for the rest of his life. Wouldn't affect mine greatly. And as an adult, Lovecraft launched his own magazine called The Conservative and began to play with writing, um, with writing his fiction shortly after. He began to dabble in the genre of horror and wrote what would be his first really successful story, The Call of Cthulhu, in 1926. And shortly after, in 1928, the pulp magazine Weird Tales published The Call of Cthulhu, establishing Lovecraft as an author in the genre of otherworldly, incomprehensible horror. Now, Lovecraft went on to write a ton of short stories and shorter novels like that after, and um, I'm not exaggerating when I say a ton. Um, this guy has so much work that I couldn't even quantify it when writing this episode. So it was it's intense. It's a lot. And today, Lovecraft's work has been extremely influential in the genres of sci-fi and horror. And um, as a quick disclaimer, because of how he often writes about races that aren't Anglo-Saxon within his short stories, Lovecraft is also often seen... Um, to hold the opinions of a bit of a racist jerk. Yeah, okay, he was most likely a racist jerk, and that's not really endearing at all, but, I mean, he's dead now, so we can appreciate the horror in his writing and let the rest stand as an example of how not to think. Fortunately for us, the short story that I will be reading to you today does not have any racist undertones and is rather a fun and chilling glimpse into how and why we really fear what cannot be defined. So stay tuned for a reading of H.P. Lovecraft's The Unnameable here on WECB.
Now you just heard Buried in Teeth by Marie Sue, which is a lovely and haunting tune. I really like it. And now for a reading of H.P. Lovecraft's The Unnameable. The Unnameable by H.P. Lovecraft, written in 1923. Revised for radio by yours truly. We were sitting on a dilapidated 17th century tomb in the late afternoon of an autumn day at the old burying ground in Arkham, while speculating about the unnameable. Looking towards the giant willow in the cemetery, whose trunk had nearly engulfed an ancient, illegible slab, I had made a fantastic remark about the unmentionable nourishment which the colossal roots must be sucking from that charnel earth, when my friend chitted me for such nonsense and told me that nothing could possibly exist to nourish the tree in other than an ordinary matter. Besides, he added, my constant talk about unnameable and unmentionable things was a very puerile device, quite in keeping with my lowly standing as an author. I was too fond of ending my stories with sights or sounds which paralyzed my hero's faculties and left them without courage, words, or associations to tell what they had just experienced. We know things, he said, only through our five senses or our intuitions, Wherefore, it is quite impossible to refer to any object or spectacle which cannot be clearly depicted by the solid definitions of fact or the correct doctrines of theology, preferably those of the Congregationalist and whichever modifications tradition and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle may supply. With this friend, Joel Manton, I had often languidly disputed. He was principal of the East High School, born and bred in Boston, and sharing New England's self-satisfied deafness to the delicate overtones of life. It was his view that only our normal, objective experiences possess any aesthetic significance and that it is the province of the artist not so much to rouse strong emotion by action, ecstasy, and astonishment as to maintain a placid interest and appreciation by accurate, detailed transcripts of everyday affairs. Especially did he object to my preoccupation with the mystical and unexplained, for, although believing in the supernatural much more fully than I, he would not admit that it is sufficiently commonplace for literary treatment. That a mind can find its greatest pleasure and escapes from the daily treadmill was something virtually incredible to his clear, practical, and logical intellect. With him, all things and feelings had fixed dimensions, properties, causes, and effects— and although he vaguely knew that the mind sometimes holds visions and sensations of far less classifiable nature, he believed himself justified in drawing an arbitrary line ruling out of court all that cannot be experienced and understood by the average citizen. Besides, he was almost sure that nothing can really be unnameable. It just didn't sound sensible to him. Though I well realized the futility of imaginative and metaphysical arguments against the complacency of an orthodox sun-dweller, something in the scene of this afternoon colloquy moved me to more than the usual contentiousness. The crumbling slate slabs, the patriarchal trees, and the gambrel roofs of the witch-haunted old town that stretched around all combined to ruse my spirit in defense of my work. It was not, indeed, difficult to begin a counterattack for I knew that Joel Manton actually half-clung to many old wives' superstitions that sophisticated people had long outgrown. 
I now, instead, argued a faith in the existence of spectral substances on Earth apart from their material counterparts. It argued a capability of believing in phenomena beyond all normal notions, for if a dead man can transmit his visible or tangible image half across the world or down the stretch of the centuries, how can it be absurd to suppose that the deserted houses are full of queer sentient things or that old graveyards teem with the terrible, unbodied intelligence of generations? And since spirit, in order to cause all the manifestations attributed to it, cannot be limited by any of the laws of matter, why is it extravagant to imagine physically living dead things in shapes, or even absences of shapes, of which human spectators consider utterly and appallingly unnameable? Common sense, I assured my friend with some warmth, is merely a stupid absence of imagination and mental flexibility. Twilight had now approached, but neither of us felt any wish to cease speaking. Manton seemed unimpressed by my arguments, and eager to refute them, having that confidence in his own opinions which had doubtless caused his success as a teacher, whilst I was too sure of my ground to fear defeat. The dusk fell, and lights faintly gleamed in some of the distant windows, but we did not move. Our seat on the tomb was very comfortable, with the deserted 17th century house between us and the nearest lighted road. There in the dark, upon that riven tomb by the deserted house, we talked on about the unnameable. After my friend had finished his scoffing, I told him of the awful evidence behind the story at which she had scoffed the most. I told him what I had found in an old diary kept between 1706 and 1723, unearthed among family papers not a mile from where we were sitting. That, and the certain reality of the scars on my ancestor's chest and back which the diary described. I told him, too, of the fears of others in that region, and how they were whispered down for generations, and how no mythical madness came to the boy in 1793 who entered an abandoned house to examine certain traces suspected to be there. It had been an eldritch thing, no wonder sensitive students shudder at the Puritan age in Massachusetts. So little is known of what went on beneath the surface. So little, yet such a ghastly festering as it bubbles up putrescently in occasional ghoulish glimpses. The witchcraft terror is a horrible ray of light on what was stewing in men's crushed brains, but even that is a trifle. There was no beauty, no freedom. We can see that from the architectural and household remains and the poisonous sermons of the cramped divines. And inside that rusted iron straitjacket lurked gibbering, hideousness, perversion, and diabolism. Here, truly, was the apotheosis of the unnameable. It is all on that ancestral diary, all the hushed innuendos of furtive tales of things with a blemished eye seen at windows in the night or in deserted meadows near the woods. Something had caught my ancestor on a dark valley road, leaving him with marks of horns on his chest and of ape-like claws on his back. And when they looked for prints in the trampled dust, they found the mixed marks of split hooves and vaguely anthropoid paws. Once a rider said he saw an old man chasing and calling to a frightful loping, nameless thing on Meadow Hill in the thinly moonlit hours before dawn. And many believed him. Certainly, there was strange talk one night in 1710 when the childless, broken old man was buried in the crypt behind his own house in sight 
of the blank, blank slate sta- slab. They never unlocked that attic door, but left the whole house as it was, dreaded and deserted. When noises came from it, they whispered and shivered and hoped that the lock on the attic door was strong. They then stopped hoping when the horror occurred at the parsonage, leaving not a soul alive or in one piece. With the years, the legends take on a spectral character. I suppose the thing, if it was a living thing, must have died. The memory had lingered hideously, all the more hideous because it was so secret. During this narration, my friend Manton had become very silent, and I saw that my words had impressed him. He did not laugh as I paused, but asked quite seriously about the boy who went mad in 1793 and who had presumably been the hero of my fiction. I told him why the boy had gone to that shunned, deserted house and remarked that he ought to be interested since he believed that windows retained latent images of those who had sat at them. The boy had gone to look at the windows of that horrible attic because of tales of things seen behind them and had come back screaming maniacally. I will continue with the second half of the story after a short musical break. And now for something completely different. When the villagers come to my door, I will hide underneath the table in the dining room, knees drawn up to my chest. When the villagers come to my door, I will breathe shallow breaths from high up in my stomach. For the front door to split her Waiting all winter
That was If You See Light by the Mountain Goats before that, and what you just heard was The Moon Is Down by Radical Face. Welcome back to Burn After Listening on WECB. We are reading H.P. Lovecraft's The Unnameable and discussing Fear of the Unknown. Now to pick up where we left off. Men remained thoughtful as I said this, but gradually reverted to his analytical mood. He granted for the sake of argument that some unnatural monster had really existed, but reminded me that even the most morbid perversion of nature need not be unnameable or even scientifically indescribable. I admired his clearness and persistence, and added some further revelations that I had collected among the people. Those latter spectral legends, I made plain, related to monstrous apparitions more frightful than anything organic could be, apparitions of gigantic bestial forms sometimes visible and sometimes only tangible, 
which floated about on moonless nights and haunted the old house, the crypt behind it, and the grave where a sapling had sprouted besides an illegible slab. Whether or not such apparitions had ever gored or smothered people to death, as told in uncorroborated traditions, they had produced a strong and consistent impression, and were yet darkly feared by very aged natives, though largely forgotten by the last two generations, perhaps for lack, uh, perhaps dying for lack of being thought about, even. Molded by the dead brain of a hybrid nightmare, would not such a vaporous terror constitute in all loathsome truth and the exquisitely, the shriekingly, unnameable? The hour must now have grown very late. A singularly noiseless bat brushed by me, and I believe it touched Manton also, for although I could not see him, I felt him raise his arm. Presently, he spoke. But is that house with the attic window still standing and deserted? Yes, I answered. I have seen it. And did you find anything else there, in the attic or anywhere else? There were some bones up under the eaves. They may have been what the boy saw. If he was sensitive, he wouldn't have needed anything in the window glass to unhinge him. If they all came from the same object, it must have been a hysterical, delirious monstrosity. It would have been so blasphemous to leave such bones in the world, so I went back with the sack and took them to the tomb behind the house. There was an opening where I could dump them in. Don't think I was a fool. You ought to have seen that skull. It had four-inch horns, but a face and jaw like something like yours and mine. At last I could feel a real shiver run through Manton, who had moved very near, but his curiosity was undeterred. And what about the window panes? They were all gone. One window had lost its entire frame, and in all the others there was not a trace of glass in the little diamond apertures. They were that kind, the old lattice windows that went out of use before 1700. I don't believe they've had any glass for 100 years or more. Maybe the boy broke him if he got that far, the legend doesn't say. Manton was reflecting again. I'd like to see that house, Carter. Where is it? Glass or no glass, I must explore it a little. And the tomb where you put those bones, and the grave without the inscription, the whole thing, it must be a bit terrible. You did see it, I said, until it got dark. My friend was more wrought upon than I had expected, for at this touch of harmless theatricalism, he started neurotically away from me and actually cried out with a sort of gulping gasp, which released a strain of previous repression. It was an odd cry, and all the more terrible because it was answered, for as it was still echoing, I heard a creaking sound through the pitchy blackness and knew that a lattice window was opening in that accursed old house beside us. And because all the other frames were long since fallen, I knew it was the grisly, gas glassless frame of that demonic attic window. Then came a noxious rush of noisome, frigid air just in that same dreaded direction, followed by a piercing shriek just beside me on that shocking, rifted tomb of man and monster. In another instant, I was knocked from my gruesome bench by the devilish threshing of some unseen entity of titanic size but undetermined nature, knocked sprawling on the root-clutched mold of that abhorrent graveyard while the tomb came, while from the tomb came such a stifled uproar of gasping and whirring. 
there was a vortex of withering ice-cold wind and then the rattle of loose bricks and plaster. But I had mercifully fainted before I could learn what it meant. Manton, though smaller than I, is more resilient. For when we opened our eyes at almost the same instant, despite his greater injuries, our beds were side by side, and we knew in a few seconds that we were in St. Mary's Hospital. Attendants were grouped about in tense curiosity, eager to aid our memory by telling us how we came there. We soon heard of the farmer who had found us at noon in a lonely field beyond Meadow Hill, about a mile from the old burying ground, on a spot where an ancient slaughterhouse is reputed to have stood. Manton had two malignant wounds in his chest and some less severe cuts or gougings in his back. I was not so seriously hurt, but I was covered with welts and contusions of the most bewildering character, including the print of a split hoof. It was plain that Manton knew more than I, but he told nothing to the puzzled and interested physicians till he had learned what our injuries were. Then he said that we were victims of a vicious bull, though the animal was a difficult thing to place and account for. After all the doctors and nurses had left, I whispered an awestruck question. Good God, Manton. But what was it? Those scars? Was it like that? And I was too dazed to exult when he whispered back a thing I had half expected. No. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was everywhere, a gelatin, a slime, yet it had shapes, a thousand shapes of horror beyond all memory, and there were eyes, and a blemish. It was the pit, the, the maelstrom, the ultimate abomination, Carter. It was the unnameable. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. That marks the end of our story, H.P. Lovecraft's The Unnameable. Now, what I love most about The Unnameable is the notion that this being that attacks Carter and Manton is technically shapeless and does not have describable physical form. Uh, the creature is really nameless in every sense of the word, yet it manages to inflict both horror and actual physical pain upon both men. Is Lovecraft making a statement about fear of the unknown among society, or is he just telling an unsettling tale? Call in with comments and opinions at 617 824-8825. Oh, I'm sorry, 8852. Don't call that other number. It's probably somewhere completely different and they'll get really confused. Um, so one more time, that is 617-824-8852. Or send a tweet to at BAL Radio WECB. Yes, Twitter is a thing I have made and I am still learning how to operate it. So bear with me as I get that thing up and running. And now for a short music break before we discuss the unnameable. Monsters and hats 
Welcome back to Burn After Listening on WECV. You just heard Love and Mathematics by The Broken Social Scene. And before that, you heard Bad Dream Hotline by Foe, capital F-O-E. So we just finished reading The Unnameable by H.P. Lovecraft. And I posed the question of whether or not Lovecraft was making a statement about the presence of fear of the unknown in our society or whether or not he was just telling a scary story. Now, I don't personally like to assume I know 100% exactly what an author is doing unless they explicitly state it, but I do like looking at the unnameable from a social standpoint, even if it is indeed just a a chilling tale. So think about all the times in your life in which you've been really, truly afraid. Why were you really afraid? More often than not, you feared an outcome that you felt unsure of, the result of which you could not be 100% sure of what would happen. When I analyze my own personal fears, all of them have to do with things that I don't know the outcome of and that I know I have no control over, like spontaneous human combustion and other death-related fears. But honestly, though, I think that as people, we like to have complete and utter control, and we feel helpless and uncomfortable whenever we can't have it, which is honestly almost always. And I have news for us. We are really quite small. Only one civilization on one planet in one solar system, in one galaxy throughout the entire universe, and not to mention, we human beings have only been around for a tiny blimp on Earth's existence. So what really is unknown? A lot of things. The notion is equally fun and beautiful and terrifying, but if we can get a few great stories and theories about what lurks in the realm of the unknown... I'd say that we're doing pretty well for ourselves. Wouldn't you? And now for some news. A 40-foot-tall rubber duck has been spotted in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Artist Florentin Hoffman designed the concept of this giant duck as an international project. Each city that Hoffman takes the project to gets to construct their own duck, inflating it and helping it set sail in their harbors and ports. So far, 13 different countries have built their own duck to date, some in several different locations. Oftentimes, the duck is welcomed with local festivals and goings-on, generating a nice boost in capital and tourism in the areas it blows up. No pun intended. And if all that isn't enough to please you, let me tell you something. The duck is really, really cute. Go go look it up online. It's pretty adorable. Big, but adorable. 3D organ printers are on their way. Various scientists located in various places around the globe are getting closer and closer to being able to produce complicated organs like hearts. Ears, bladders, and kidneys are just a few examples of what scientists have recently just produced. And I suggest you all do more extensive research online as there's a lot that goes into 3D bioprinters that I would not be able to accurately portray over the air. Um, But just take this as a signal boot. A signal boost rather than a boot. That's weird. Um, Yeah, go look it up online. It's really cool. And um, this means that waiting on organ donation wait lists could soon be a thing of the past. The International Cryptology Museum in Portland, Maine, features in-depth exploration of old myths like that of the Yeti and Loch Ness Monster. All you have to do is pay the small admission fee. I'm pretty sure it's five for children and seven for adults. 
and then you're in for the day. And I do have to say, this is on my top 10 places to visit on the East Coast of America list. Yes, I do have a list of that. And it looks really cool. I couldn't get much more than a general statement on their website, but if you'll be in Maine anytime soon, I encourage you all go to check it out at cryptozoologymuseum.com. I will spell that for you. C-R-Y-P-T-O-Z-O-O-L-O-G-Y museum.com. Now, listeners, sit down if you're standing up, because this one's a doozy. Artist Michael Burton and Michiko... Oh, God, I should have figured out how to pronounce this before I came on air. Michiko Nita, sorry for butchering that, have created the world's first and only allergy opera. That, quote, transforms a singer's voice into an edible experience, unquote. The artist designed a suit that collects the carbon dioxide that is exhaled when singing and feeds the allergy which begins to grow in front of the audience's eyes. After the performance, audience members are invited to eat a prepared version of the allergy that grew while the singer was singing. Artists uh, artists Michael and Mikiko are based in the UK, and though I couldn't view a video of this online due to copyright infringements, it is a really cool concept, and I bet it was really interesting to see if you guys did indeed get to see it. But go check them out. Hey, listeners. Guess what time it is? Oh, good guess. Yeah, it's time for the Uncommon Word of the Week. This week's Uncommon Word is Bombilation. B-O-M-B-I-L-A-T-I-O-N. Which is a buzzing or droning. The The word has been very lightly used over the years and is thought to have a very broad meaning in that it can pertain to literally any annoying droning noise. So yes, right now, the radio show you are listening to could be considered a bombolation. Though I really hope it's not. So I'm going to play two more songs, and then our hour together will be almost over. Enjoy, guys.
This wily comet Take a drink just to give me some weight Some Uberman I'd make up Barely a vapor They shone a chlorine light on A host of individual sins Let's carve my aging face off Fetch us a knife Start with my eyes Down to the light
bygones. I click my heels, get the devils in line. A list of things I could lay the blame on might give me a way out. But with each turn, it's this front and center. Like a dot stuck square in your eye. Every post you can hit your faith on is a pie in the sky. Chalk full of lies, no tool we devise to make sinking stones fly. And still to come, though it's part and you know it, there is an in your heart and it's growing. Listening to WECB. So what you just heard was um, my favorite little electronic sweeper that we have. It's it's great. Sorry if you thought it was kind of abrasive. But um, before that, you heard A Comet Appears by The Shins. And before that, you heard Things Are Not What They Seem by The Gothic Archies. So this really has been quite the hour here on WBCB. We read The Unnameable by H.P. Lovecraft. We thought about some things, namely unknown things. We were educated in the strange goings-on of the world, and we learned a new uncommon word. See how much you can do in an hour? An hour is a really underrated amount of time, if you ask me. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to Burn After Listening on WECB, the underground sound of Emerson College. Feel free to follow the show on Facebook or Twitter. Just look up Burn After Listening on either. I follow the hashtag Our Conspiracies. Contact me more personally at Gabrielle Bottom Dash, M I K O R E N D A, at emerson.edu for questions, suggestions, or if you would like to share a cute animal video with me, because everyone likes cute animal videos. I'm Gabby Micaranda, and I hope you have a fantastic night. You deserve it. <laughs>